Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Patreon episode. This is episode 16 of the Patreon series. Chris, you're still with us? You hanging in there? Oh, man, I am. There's just this fabulous moon. Uh, it just is a beautiful end of summer thing. It's, it's haunting. It's evil and beautiful all at once. That's the best kind of beautiful thing. I think about that with art quite often. There's uh, the assumption that beauty in art is photorealism, nature scenes, things like that. But I tend to go towards the sinister and the dark and the ugly. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly why. kind of makes me feel more alive, I guess. I'm not sure. Well, if there's some edge to it. You know, one of the things we, we announced that we're going to... Uh, have our inaugurable, inaugurable, no, <laughs> inaugural, uh, our first, mm-hmm. our first happy hour uh, on Thursday. And uh, one of the things that I will just give a little preview about is that um, this last week I managed to arrange a formal professional journalistic interview with a woman who is a professional escort mistress concubine and she's not uncomfortable entirely with the term hooker but her fee is three thousand dollars per hour and uh, i have to tell you that um that was a lunch worth having all it was was a a lunch in a very frank engaging discussion which i will be a long time processing but there's some good female male stuff to uh to trot out that I think the happy hour might be a, a place just to introduce a few of the grace notes, a bit of the spice from that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing that myself. Um, well, Chris, here on this Patreon exclusive, thanks once again to our subscribers. We appreciate you very much. You keep us going. Uh, what would you like to talk about today? Well, we've got something exciting to follow up on, and I think that we're, we're going to do the best we can in one segment, but I think the idea that you put forward uh, in an earlier episode, and we have given it a, one other look, but it's a really big idea of popular culture as child sacrifice. That is going to be our, our theme, but I, I would remind listeners that we have an ongoing a uh, couple of features. Um, David has once again been given five uh, words to choose two, uh, two words to uh, intermingle into the discussion wherever he feels is most appropriate. It's kind of secret agent training. Uh, it's part of the methodology I introduce in the Rutledge uh, Press textbook. It's a fun way to structure the mind, to give yourself some challenges when you're going out to a social occasion, when you're interacting with people, give yourself some words that you, you, you want to intermingle into the conversation. And it has a very interesting long-term effect on the mind and on how we deal with language, how we deal with opportunity. Language is always opportunistic and contextual. So that's a really important aspect. The other thing which has proven very successful, and I think a lot of fun, and I've been very impressed with David's flexibility and what he's brought to to the party of imaginative challenges at each episode segment. 
And these are always things that he hears as you're hearing them for the first time. He's had no real briefing on this at all, other than just the simple material of a sheet of paper and a pen, because this time uh, it is imaginative and conceptual, but it's also physical. It's physical and visual. And it is an exercise I call the path of the spider. And it, uh, it could be uh, placed under the larger framework of labyrinth theory and labyrinth training. Very powerful symbol, labyrinths, mandalas, you know, kind of one of the great world symbols. Okay, are you ready, David? Here is your challenge. Okay, I'm ready. All right, I want you to imagine that piece of paper as a thin section of roofing shingle. And in the dead center of it is an echidna quill, a very robust echidna quill, which has been rammed into it. You can think of it as a nail, if you like. It's a center point. It's a center point of your white sheet of paper. But think of it as dimensionally and physically, you know, tangible as possible. In other words, as non-two-dimensional. Make it as three-dimensional in your mind as you can. I now want you to think about the possibility, and I've met people who can do this. Huntsman spiders are really kind of cool, mellow uh, spiders. They're um, mildly, mildly venomous. That's really not how they hunt. Um, they're, they tend to uh, be in the tropical regions. Um, they're kind of uh, prognosticators. If, if you do live in certain latitudes and you see a huntsman spider, in your kitchen, say, there is an excellent chance it's going to rain within 24 hours. Oh, very, very fine chance of that. But they're mellow spiders. They are, they are fairly good sized. But I want you to imagine the ability to tie a thread around one of the legs without disabling the creature. Okay, you're that graceful. You have that much finesse. You're not hurting the spider. You've been able to wrap a red thread around one of its legs and attach that to your echidna quill or your center point all right mm -hmm. and while we're talking i want you to think about what the path of the spider would be mm. what 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 shapes would it form how would that work and give us a good doodle which i'm going to ask you then at the end to scan and post on uh, the Patreon page. Because this exercise has two real points to it. In where I learned this, uh, it's considered another model for time. Mm. You know, we have lots of metaphors for time, and they often tend to be linear. Time is like a river, time is like a ladder, time is, you know, uh, time is an arrow, you know. Um, most of us, I think, have some doubts about that, that time is, is very, very relative, uh, shape-shifting, and it's not as easily sort of placed into a framework of A to B or A to Z, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It is more like a labyrinth. So part of this, the, the path of the spider idea, is to try to give us another kind of visualization. The other thing is to engage with the consciousness of a creature very, very alien to us. This is the core problem, in my view, that humanity faces, that we are so divorced 
from the continuum of other creatures. Uh, we can't even, you know, we struggle to relate to domestic companion animals like cats and dogs. And we kind of caricature them oftentimes to do that. But a spider is not so easily caricatured. And to think just with the mind of your hand, and I love that expression, the mind of your hand, just to let that take whatever form uh, it, it takes over the course of the conversation. So, is any questions about that challenge? One question. So, I am I'm sort of drawing the path that the spider would take? Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay, so I'm not, you know, I'm not drawing smiley faces or trees or anything like that. This is no, 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 no. You're letting your hand be a spider and following that. And what we're seeing is uh, the kind of time lapse version of what path the spider would take. Um, cool. It is, it is contained. It, it, it. I'd like to not think trapped. It has mobility. There's enough slack in the thread. It's not stressed but we are engaging in a kind of human-managed way with a very alien life form. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Yep, I can do it. Okay. All right. Well, that's exciting. Okay, on to this very, very provocative theme of child sacrifice as the deeper mythological... Uh, magical meaning behind pop culture and I would remind viewers who are following this because I think this is one of the the, the big topics that David and I have arrived at um, and David really introduced this uh, and I think that it's very very exciting and the context the starting point was in a discussion about Charles Manson and a kind of dark uh, punctuation point to the summer of love counterculture idealism of the 60s, uh, that there was this other aspect that kind of emerged from the shadows with almost uh, a musical level of, of precision, it seems like. It, 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 it's almost, it's very hard for me now to look back on the end of that decade and not think of the Manson murders as being a, a kind of a, a showcase finale, in a sense. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting way to get to child sacrifice. David, I want to turn it over to you to build on that, because I think we have several different directions to go in. There's, there's certainly something that, in our terms of a new anthropology, a new kind of magical Jungian ritual aspect to... Uh, American culture, if nothing else, uh, that, that seems to be right about this. How do we flesh this out now a little bit, with a little bit more uh, rigor and specificity? I think that the way that we flesh this out is by focusing more specifically on uh, historical acts of child sacrifice and something that we mentioned last time, which is what exactly child sacrifice was supposed to <coughs> achieve when it was enacted in these kind of cultures? Because I think if we be, if we begin, <coughs> sorry about that. Um, I think if we begin to understand the reasoning for this, I think we'll um, I think we'll be able to 
be able to transpose that onto modern day and maybe get a better understanding of what is happening when we're talking about child sacrifice in the terms of uh, of Holly Holly Weird. Yeah, Holly Weird and and and, and Holly Weird music too. Pop music, I think, is a mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. part of it too. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm all in favor of that. Um, what about just throwing out some some examples? Sure. And and these are both. I mean, they, they are historic in, in in the literal sense, but they they might be completely imaginative, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I thought of a few things. I, I thought of um, in this great new book I've got, um, Atlas Obscura. There is a, a, a really beautiful uh, picture of the the child eater of burn statue which is this giant ogre that's eating children. And that, of course, made me think of Hansel and Gretel and fattening children up. And then I did briefly think in very contemporary terms about the fact that uh, children's body mass index is blown out by 20% during COVID. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, I thought of Moloch, the the mythological uh, figure <coughs> mentioned in in Leviticus in the Bible, thought to be sort of a Canaanite god, mm-hmm. uh, bullheaded, associated with fire mm-hmm. and the sacrifice of children specifically, uh, referenced by Milton, by Ginsburg, uh, by Flaubert. Uh, many people, a great mythological kind, of, and I think some something of a reference to the Minotaur with the bull head, um, but also Lamia, uh, the serpent woman, uh, goddess from from Greek mythology. People may remember um, Keats's uh, poem, but but she, you know, that's a very famous figure, you know, generally, um, but. Those are some mythological historic groundings for it. Um, certainly, the uh, the sacrifice of children historically in terms of child labor um, is something that it, it's big on my mind because I've had students who've done really some great research projects on it, and because they were all, they were really so surprised that that kids were actually doing work, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course we've got. As we said last time, the the whole notion of war, and and really how that has affected pretty young people. My father was was just eighteen uh, when he was sent off to get blown to bits and come back, you know, in whatever pieces he came back in. Um, so those are some things to throw out. Uh, and then there's you know there are many other examples which I think we'll get on to. But but what what about that as a starting point? I think that's a great starting point. I think that I would like to add to, in terms of the mythology and stories, uh, the binding of Isaac is a big one too. Yes, yes, and that's a very big yes, and it's a and it's a formative one as well. And I think that when we start to look at what the the story of the binding of Isaac means, we might be moving closer to that. What what is your interpretation of that biblical story? Um. I think it, it's an example of, uh, well, it, it, it's first predicated on uh, Yahweh and, and a very Old Testament notion of God and, and, a, and a very jealous sense of, of, of what the God figure, you know, this is not the Sermon on the Mount, 
<laughs> this is not uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. This is a very old God that demands sacrifice as a starting point. And therefore, sacrifice begins to be focused on what is the most precious resource, the most precious thing you have to lose. Uh, and then also there's this patriarchal idea that who gets to make the decisions about that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the things that are going on there. But certainly, uh, and also, I mean, I think the Freudian interpretation of that would be is, um, well, who are you really going to be afraid of in a sense? Mm -hmm. it, it may be, and this might be very relevant to uh, a new father, um, it may be the competition uh, coming up from, uh, you know, a powerful son, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Something about the act of sacrifice in terms of, in terms of it being something that's very precious to you seems interesting and you see this all the time in sacri in magical sacrifices whether it's human or otherwise the idea is that you're supposed to be giving up something that uh, is important to you whether that's uh, food a person uh, a habit what have you you're supposed to experience some kind of lack in order for the sacrifice to really work i wonder what's going on with the idea of um this kind of taking taking something important in a in a magical sense i wonder is is that is that in some way relevant in terms of children you know the the importance of them the uh the toll it takes on the the people for whom the children are special i think it's absolutely essential um <clears throat> and i think it shows uh the I'm going to use the word orthodoxy, and I, I don't mean that in the, in, the, in the literal sense of it. I mean a deep commitment of taking the major four world religions, or perhaps five, very seriously. Because I think this is a common theme, that nothing really counts unless it counts, unless it really matters to you. If for Lent you're giving up, uh, you know, using paper clips... Uh, well, you know, that's not that doesn't sound like a very big sacrifice, does it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that what what the notion of sacrifice, and it is it is directly related to to the sacred. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason why those words sound the same. Uh, is that it is about something that is a fundamental aspect of you that you are putting at risk. And it's, it's, it needs to be experienced at the individual and the communal level. And I think the mythological, anthropological explanation of sacrifice in functionalist terms is that it is one of the major ways of linking the individual with the community, however large that community is. Mm -hmm. And I think you could say that the idea of community was defined by how uh, many ripples out from the individual it could extend. Um, so sacrifice has to be really, it, it has to hurt to mean something. Mm -hmm. You know, it really does. In terms of community, that brings me to the child eater of Bern, which I'm looking at right now. And apparently this is in a prominent square somewhere. I don't know if I've ever yeah. actually seen this uh, statue before. It's pretty frightening. Um, it's terribly frightening. Thank you. 
But uh, it says here, and I'm just reading from the Wikipedia here, so we're doing a little Wikipedia investigation. Uh, the fountain sculpture depicts a seated ogre devouring a naked child. Placed at his side is a bag containing more children. Because the ogre is wearing a pointed hat resembling a Jewish one, it has been speculated about the possibility of the ogre being a, the depiction of a Jew as an expression of blood libel against Jews. Um, that's a lot to take in, but it seems interesting to me from a community perspective that the child eater statue is so prominently displayed um, and that it would be something that you would just pass by all of like all the time. And I wonder if that doesn't have some kind of, um, you know, thinking again about the importance of ritual in terms of bonding communities together. Um, I wonder if this sort of fountain statue uh, in a way takes the place of an actual child sacrifice, even though it's scary, and even though people might not want to look at it uh, as they as they walk by it. I think um, if you think of rituals and sacrifices as being symbols that bond communities, that sort of break down individuality and create a, a sort of resonance chamber where members of a community can, uh, without using words, kind of kind of organize their lives around. I wonder if there isn't that element of child sacrifice as well, right? Like we're all sort of bonded by this, uh, this horrible thing, this horrible symbolic thing that we've all partaken in or witnessed or, or what have you. Well, I think there is, you know, a very, very practical uh, management of deep psychology in that kind of presentation because, I mean, well before uh, Gus was born, you were talking about pedophilia, fear of child abuse, fear of child death, mm -hmm. things. I mean, this is one of our deepest social anxieties. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier um, a fellow writer, uh, his story about uh, his anxieties about uh, being a new father and, and what imaginative ends that he went to to process those. Mm -hmm. And you're beginning to experience, you know, more and more of those. And it's going to be a never, you know, kind of hopefully never-ending thing. Yeah. And I think it is so deep that, that in, in order to manage it at all, we do have to kind of bring it out into the open a little bit. We maybe do need a big, really evil-looking ogre uh, in a city municipal uh, place where people pass by all the time to kind of domesticate a terror, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that that is better brought out into the open. So we do, you know, occasionally. I mean, imagine walking past that. Right, you would you would occasionally flash and you think, ah, that's a pretty gruesome image. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes it would be, you know, it would just be part of the landscape. But I think that that is a much more successful. Uh, ghost radio signal uh, strategy than the shadowy power that we give to child abusers and and the true ogres and werewolves and vampires you know the, who are actually preying on children uh, they thrive in the shadows you mm -hmm. know that's that's the that's the gig 
you know? Oh, so trying to bring that yeah. forward, you know? Yeah. Okay, we're getting close to something here. I think, okay, so this brings up the difference between actual violence inflicted against children and its symbolic representation, perhaps the idea of a statue like this or a story that we tell being a uh, a pressure release valve for these for this kind of malevolence or uh, a way to isolate and contain that kind of spirit so that it doesn't get out so, th so that's one track but the other one is the idea of this statue being in a very public place as a kind of uniting act as, as something that perhaps connects a community to itself and maybe even to a higher power in the case of the story of Abraham and Isaac um so I wonder if, so there's two different tracks and I'm getting a little bit confused and one of them leads to the idea of child sacrifice as a, as a bonding uh, experience for a community that can be transposed into something like a statue or a story so that we don't have to engage in the abject horror of actually committing the act. But then there's also the idea of it as an evil eye charm against that which it actually represents. Um... I th what do you think about I that? I think it's serving as both. I think that's very, very well said, and I think that needs to be uh, looked at in, in mechanics terms uh, uh, in, in a few different ways because I think that it's very complicated. The first part of that, I think, is is the easiest to to understand, that, that it's a kind of stylization of violence and fear and, and communal horror in a way that can be managed. And I think that that can, that, that can be said to apply to many imaginative executions, uh, from myths and legends to, you know, a, a lot of B-movie horror. I think there are a lot of people who uh, I, I trust in their views of why the horror genre is so popular. They often talk about it in terms of... Uh, managing managing fear in a deep sense by creating a ceremonial space of containment and um, I, I don't know I have one um, thing to share on this front which is I, I think related um, but it's just so moving that I think it's just important unto itself and you've just made me think about it um, I'm part of a, a rape uh, survivors network um, we don't have a, a regular schedule of communication, but we do have a good sort of network link. And uh, one woman who I've never met, uh, but I, I just think she's a very, she's become a therapist. Um, she shared something that was just so uh, riveting to me that I, and, and so true to a dark part of the human psyche that I, I just, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's relevant here. Uh, she was, uh, her, her situation was, um, she was summering in the Adirondacks and uh, there was a, a family uh, breakdown and she was left alone in, in uh, a cabin there 
and was raped over a period of, of, of 72 hours uh, by uh, a local uh, insane person. And she shared with the group that every year she goes back to the Adirondacks, even though it provokes great anxiety and stress. And she actually had the courage to share that she ritually reenacts that experience. She's all alone. She's playing both parts. Mm -hmm. It is theatrical. She has had some acting training. She's using that as a form of therapy. But to me, that is a very harrowingly honest and strangely innocent way of trying to incorporate and deal and integrate some great evil in the past in, in a positive sort of way. And it, it, it is a, a, it's, it's perverse, and she acknowledges that, because it is a return to that point of darkness every year. But she said that gives her the, the strength and the focus and the socialization capabilities to move past that. And, and she credits being, becoming uh, you know, an effective therapist. Uh, and she works well beyond just the, the rape and sexual abuse fields. She's a, a proper psychotherapist. Um, but she credits that, that ritualistic practice, which is personal magic mm. in, in a very um, you know, basic but dark way, yeah. as, as her vehicle forward. And I, I, I put that as, as a private, intimate uh, secret almost, except, you know, really, she's now sharing it. Um, that's the individual version of this communal, social, civic, mm-hmm. cultural demonstration right do you, do you, is that kind of resonating at all absolutely that's exactly what i mean by these statues stories even um something that you might look at as dark and sinister you know you mentioned moloch and uh alex jones famously broke into um why is this slipping my mind i have podcast brain now uh he snuck into Hold on, I have to look this up because this is going to bother me. Remember when Alex Jones got the, <laughs> got the footage of all those hooded figures worshiping Moloch, uh, and it was a Bohemian Grove, duh, obviously. Yeah, Bohemian Grove, the giant owl. The gi- I mean, yes, yeah, in it, Marin County. And, yes, and there's a part of that story in which they bring out an effigy of a child and you know say some cryptic, spooky things, and then end up uh, you know burning it or whatever. Um, and I wonder if in these people's terms, I mean, you know, if that is not in some way, not just a not negative, but an actual positive in that it's creating a space for that energy to exist, whether it's dark energy or not, obviously without the actual murder of a child, right? It's kind of preferable in a way, right? That these people are creepy though it might be that they're doing this effigy burning because, you know, it, it takes out, you know, the important part, which is, you know, an actual child doesn't get, doesn't get hurt. And, you know, not to get too far off the subject or what have you, but this also brings up the very interesting, uh, case of, you know, pedophiles who are not offenders, right. Who have these kind of strange impulses and they need to find a way to get them, to get them out. There was a conversation in the, 
Twitter discourse recently about a prominent blue check tweet person who uh, runs a company that, uh, or doesn't run a company, but now he's the kind of a, a marketing manager for a company that traffics in kind of child sex dolls, right? It's all very gross and very uncomfortable to talk about. Oh dear, yeah. yeah. It's very uncomfortable and very gross, and I don't know the science behind whether or not this kind of thing is, you know, keeps actual children from, from being harmed. But again, it's in that same vein of, like, perhaps some of this, you know, this dark energy has to be ritualized in order for there to be a release for it. Well, God, you know, it's just... Uh... It is just all so dark and so complicated, but I think it is something so important historically, and it has come to flashpoint sort of uh, in our society today where we have this enormous anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think as, as, you know, as Gus grows and you get more involved with parents of other kids, you know, it, it's just in its atmospheric fear that... Totally. Is, is in some cases completely legitimate, right. absolutely completely legitimate. And yet it's also counterbalanced, as we've said, by a lot of very strange uh, counter messaging, particularly in, in the case of, of young girls, you know, mm -hmm. wearing, you know, T-shirts with slogans that are completely inappropriate to, well, I think to any to anyone of any age, but certainly to someone pre-puberty. I mean, I, come on, you know. So we we've got a lot of, of real heavy, heavy confusion there. But uh, one of the things that I, I I wanted to pick up on in this episode, if and if we need to go further with it, we we, we will, we will. But we we uh, introduce the idea, and you use the term. Of, of vampirism mm -hmm. and and the vampire uh, scenario here in terms of a, the child sacrifice sort of element, but I, if we look at that as a species or a, a subset of predation at large, predation of because this is what we're afraid of with the, with the pedophiles, mm -hmm. we call them sexual predators, Correct, right? Yeah. Um, the, the 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 clear model is. Uh, the werewolf myth, and and this relates directly to uh, to my attacker. That was that. That's the one thing I know about his vision of things, is that he saw that was how he saw it. Mm -hmm. And um, Wait, that's not saying that, that he was a werewolf you know, or. Well, that 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 the abuse afflicted on him had created a kind of, uh, not a werewolf literally, no, I, I don't mean to say that he was in, into lycanthropy in that sense, but he saw himself as being infected by a kind of violence and predation, mm -hmm. which he was then mm -hmm. uh, predetermined and, gotcha. and therefore cursed to, to inflict on others. Um, which I think is, is not entirely, you know, I mean, we know that. We know that, that, that a great number of, of people who are uh, sexual abusers or who fall under that category of predation. And I think we could extend that to bullying. Sure. You know, it, it yeah. doesn't have to be sexual. I think it could be, you know, much more... I think that we are the products, in a sense, of those very vulnerable years mm -hmm. when we are at the mercy of older and bigger people. 
you know? Right. Um, that's, and that is, so yeah. I, I, I think that's, I think, so werewolves uh, and it are worth throwing into that metaphoric. I, I really do want to stress metaphoric. Uh, but I mean, and we, we've talked about how concrete metaphors are. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't apologize for how real metaphors are. We, they're real enough. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so we've got vampires, werewolves, and we also have talked about sort of the whole zombie mm -hmm. uh, craze, which has been a, you know, all of these things are huge commercial, popular entertainment things. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what you have said very explicitly, which got me so excited, is that popular culture is ritualistically based on child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So therefore, these big commercial entertainment motifs, vampires, werewolves, zombies, uh, index against that in some way. And I think they do, but I'm interested in how you see it. The zombie craze in particular is very interesting when you take into account that every single zombie movie has an instance with a zombie child in it. Uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake opens with a child eating her father and going after her mother, I believe is how that how that works. Um, but any I recently played a video game called Resident Evil 2. It's a remake of a game oh, from yes. It's a, it's a remake from 1998. They remade it in 2019. Uh, it cost a hundred million dollars to make. It's this big budget blockbuster video game and I beat it last night. felt pretty happy with myself even though i got a ranking of of c i got a letter grade of c which i, I thought i earned at least a c plus for my playthrough but i, I can't really litigate it <laughs> um but so in in this game one of the uh, key key figures that you're supposed to protect in the game is is a child um the zombie thing in general fits in with the werewolf in terms of infection but also, we seem to come back to this image again of the child, of needing to protect the child. Or when we know things have really gone off the rails is when the, we do see the children being infected. There's a cutscene in the Resident Evil game when you go to a gun shop and there's a, there's a, the store owner is there and his wife has died and his, his daughter emerges from a back room looking very sick. And he tells her, you know, to go back and, you know, to just leave them alone. And, you know, they're just going to try to wait out the zombie storm. And then, of course, you hear through the door, things don't turn out well for him because his daughter is, you know, turning into a zombie. But there's something very symbolically important going on, both in terms of the, uh, the infection, uh, which we've seen play out in our, in our narrative stories with the kind of COVID pandemic, and and then but also in the in the effects on on children which we've also seen in our our version of this pandemic right one of the big fights you know um about this whole thing was about whether or not children could be infected by this thing so there's there's something there there's something with infection in childhood the innocence of it the need to protect them uh that is definitely transposed against a kind of system that seems to understand in a deep arconic uh, black magic sort of sense that that there is a need there's a need to depict and symbolically represent at the very least their their sacrifice so there's something there's definitely a tension there okay i i, I want to float a theory here which mm -hmm. um is unusually uh 
socially pragmatic for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I usually go to the, a more uh, weirdo sort of metaphysical level, but I, I want to put forward the possibility, just to see what you think of this, that the, the notion of childhood innocence is a late 19th century, early 20th century, pre-World War I creation that was very class-based. It had to do with upper-class children. It had to do with a separation of from child labor and child risk, the kinds of things that, say, Charles Dickens wrote so beautifully about, mm -hmm. uh, that we created an artificial bubble uh, and a kind of Courier and Ives, uh, Norman Rockwell, early, you know, pre-Norman Rockwell, but that kind of vision of childhood. And to some extent, Mark Twain participated in that. I think that, uh, you know, his, the, the, the distinction between Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn is, is almost schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very odd stylistically. I mean... Huck Finn is part of a world of, of many complexities, and Tom Sawyer is pointedly not, and a resistance to that. So you have a kind of a class-based vision of a sacrosanct innocence around childhood, not a sexually retarded or unrealized version, mm -hmm. but a kind of blessedness, you know, right. a kind of uh, purity. And then... We have a couple of different directions going on. We have World War One hit. We have right. the emergence of uh, a very raucous uh, populist gangster prohibition era leading into the Depression, where we have child labor and child vagrancy. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've actually got in my file. Uh, no, well, I can't. I don't have it right now. But it's. Um, it's a photograph taken uh, in your neck of the woods. It's, it's, it's over the border into Texas, but uh, it, it's hundreds and hundreds of kids mm -hmm. rather like locusts uh, on a freight train. You know, these aren't hobos with their child or, you know, their sons and daughters or their child prostitutes. These are children on their own. You know, they're, they've broken out and they're on their own. We get things like Lord of the Flies and A High-Winded Jamaica and Village of the Damned and a whole lot of other mythology of children as demons, children as threats to adulthood, threats to stability and social order. And that, that couldn't be a better description of, of the great fear of rock and roll, you know? Um, so... I don't know, I just threw out a lot of stuff there. But I think the point is an artificial bubble about the innocence of childhood created for class reasons by an essentially upper class uh, or upperly mobile uh, middle class of the late 19th century that then takes some very weird forms and that we get both an increased attention back onto the magic power of child sacrifice mm -hmm. but we also get strangely child fear mm -hmm. a fear of, of the power of children young people right so what's interesting to me about that is the idea of the of the child as being a kind of tabula rasa that you can put whatever you want onto 
right? Whether it is a kind of locust-like fear or, you know, this, this kind of picture of innocence. But, you know, when you have this, uh, this blank slate that you can kind of pour violence onto in different ways, I think that that gets to this. Well, okay, here's the thing. When it comes to child sacrifice in the way that you're describing it, so before before this this point in the late, you said the late 19th century, right? Yeah, um, I think, so. yeah. Really the Industrial Revolution, but 1880 through, uh, you know, World War Two, World War One. Right. So before before that time, then children were. Pers- I guess it's so hard to say, right? Because we're talking about time and space, you know, over over the course of like the world and also also in time. Um, yeah, there's a lot there that I'm unpacking, and the spider is still making its path around my paper here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good to hear good to hear we don't want that spider stopping moving too long although that's part of the deal too yeah sometimes it will stop and it's uh it's also it's butting up against the the confines of its cage a lot which i don't know what that's really saying um but uh yeah the idea of children as locusts and this kind of village of the damned kind of thing and the threat to the threat to order i think is so directly tied to child sacrifice as well because we've been focusing very specific on the loss of innocence angle, but I think child sacrifice could be seen as a reinforcement of the status quo, right? Um, I think that's a great insight. I really, I, I was, I was hoping. For, I think you're right. I think you're right. Flesh that out. So yeah, I mean, if there is this kind of separation between childhood and adulthood those lines get very blurred as we've gone into it's kind of our hobby horse on this show right the idea of a lack of initiation rights um kind of causing this this blurring of of the lines but you know so throughout time you want a clear delineation between the world of childhood and the world of adulthood and the reason for that is very simple is that order has to be maintained in some way shape or form a hierarchy has to be maintained even hierarchies within adulthood depend on a child and adult type dynamic because what's what's an employee in many cases if not the 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 child in a kind of relationship to the adult you don't need to if you're in the military you don't need to know why your commanding officer is making the decisions that they're making in fact it's very highly frowned upon if you question anything they say at all you're just supposed to listen so i think that the idea of the um of the child sacrifice is essentially showing that when it comes down to it, there are people who need to be listened to. And that kind of force, that kind of, uh, that raw, youthful power to buck against these kind of authorities has to be uh, sort of maybe symbolically put in its place, which ties directly back to Hollywood and the music industry as being ritualized child sacrifice. It's entertaining, it's cathartic, it's a way for us to, um, you know, kind of indulge in maybe strange fantasy worlds, but also in this capitalist society that we live in, it is a very public spectacle that reinforces that at the end of the day, the adults need to be in charge. Because look at what happens to these these children who go out into the woods to the witch's cabin, <laughs> you know? Um, I'll right, st- right, st- yeah. yeah. I'll stop there, but I think we're getting close. You know, I, 
I, I think we are getting close to, and I, you know, after our last episode, I, I went back and I watched uh, the video from the Ed Sullivan sort of era of the, the breakthrough moment of the Jackson 5. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the they, they have a couple of, of numbers, ABC and, you know, little, you know, upbeat dance numbers and stuff. But the, the one I wanted to see was Michael Jackson as a kid. As an absolute kid, I mean, no one's calling him a teenager because he's not in this video, and he's in this sort of cool, you know, uh, late '60s, '70s cost. But he's he's wearing a pimp hat, you know. I mean, that's what they call them in my neighborhood, and that's that's what it is. And he's singing "Who's Loving You," mm-hmm. which is a slow song, and it's a he. I mean, he just he nails it. He absolutely, it's a fantastic vocal performance. But nonetheless, it's, yeah, it's kind of disturbing. The outfit is disturbing. The age of the kid, I mean, it, this is not Shirley Temple, you know, singing on the good ship Lollipop. This is about who's loving you. This is an adult love song sung by someone who is not a teenager, let alone an adult dressed in a way that is, uh, well, it's Vegas casino confrontational, you know? I mean, (laughs) that's how people, you know, dress now when there's a big fight night on, you know? And, but they're 30 years older, you know? (laughs) So it, it, it was very, very troubling to go back to that. And, and, Think of all of the 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 bubblegum machine that cranked out these alternative Shirley Temples that have just been spewed at us really week by week since then. And it it really is very, very disturbing that that that, that has become so normalized now. And it's it's more than normalized. It's an ideal scenario for many parents. They want their kids to audition for these, for, for Moloch. They want the, to, to offer up children to the machine, to Lamia, the serpent woman, mm-hmm. or the big bullheaded god with, you know, fire, you know? That, very weird. It's very, it is very weird, and I think that, you know, putting aside all of the financial considerations and, and things of that nature, I, I do wonder if there isn't... What was the phrase... Uh, when a certain number of ants get together, you start to see a brain. Who's who said this? The thinking starts. The, Lewis the, Lewis the Thomas thought. Starts. Yeah, the thinking the starts. Thinking starts. People are the same way, except it's a different level of thinking. You get enough people together, this mob mentality idea, and the the resonating starts, or the community aspect of it starts. And I wonder if these people couldn't be likened to uh, initiates, or you know, or people who kind of understand what's going on and what the importance of what they're what they're doing on a community-wide level is and as a passing thought it also doesn't escape me that there's the idea of the tiger mom are you familiar with this concept oh yes i am indeed indeed tiger mom and there is the uh you know the ballet recital mom who are who are very you know kind of rigorous and and brutal there's joe jackson um you know all these kind of taskmasters 
symbolically and ritualistically, considering what we're saying, the uh, the kind of importance in maybe reifying some of these hierarchical structures might be. Um, I wonder if they're not if they're not play acting that as well. Tiger Woods' parents, I think, or dad was was insane with him. Uh, all these kind of crazy taskmaster parents. If the idea is to reify the idea of authority, they are embodying authority. If anyone has not seen the, I believe it's the first time. Tiger Woods really made national television. He's on the Michael Douglas show with his father, uh, swinging a golf club, hitting you know a ball into a net. I I challenge anyone to look at that and not have some questions. <laughs> it, it it is it's astounding the response to that that as if being a prodigy of any kind then releases uh, the adults in question from any sort of normalcy of responsibility and, and guardianship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just terrifying. Mm-hmm. It really is terrifying. And I think you can go back and look at that and you think, well, um, that explains everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. or that, kids say it was the all done things. right there. Kids say the darndest yeah. things, you know, Bill Cosby. Uh, asking kids questions and then they give these sort of hilarious hilariously uncouth answers and the joke of the show is that you know the adults know better meanwhile it's hosted by bill Cosby. (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah the face and voice of jello which ties back into um the interview with my mom who came from the town where Jella was born. Mm-hmm. It is all so bizarre. Yeah. It is bizarre. Yeah. And I think that we have to say that America still leads the charge in, in mythology that is not really completely understood as such, but nonetheless has enormous currency even in the moment. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well, I think... What do you think about that for today? You think that's a good stopping point? I, I think that's a good stopping point, and we can flag. I, I, there, there are some exciting other references to go into next time. I, I would like to just pick up a little bit on Carol Capek's War with the Newts. Uh, he was the uh, author who gave us uh, the whole idea of robots. Uh, an interesting playwright. Um, but the War of the Newts came out in 1936. And is about the the Moloch idea, and some of the writing is just sort of wonderful, even in translation. But there's more to be said about this because I think that we touched on a really important uh, confusion, conflict, and evolution of the 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 sacrifice of children, which was our starting point, and then the fear. Of, of children, the village of the damned, you know, any number of, of, of executions, Lord of the Flies, Highwind in Jamaica, on and on and on, uh, and rock and roll and the whole rise of, of popular music. Children as marketing power, you know. I want those Nikes, Dad, you know. Um, all of that stuff. So there is more to be said about this because, and we then, you know, also have the issue of where are the people who are 
nominally adults, even if they haven't had any initiation rituals, I mean, where are they in all of this? And and this is going to be a directly relevant question uh, to you and Rios as, as new parents. Um, and the other thing that I, I think will be an interesting takeoff point to next time is, and you mentioned the, the idea of the tabula rasa, which is a major, major 18th century idea, which then feeds into the 19th century notion of nature versus nurture. It's an old idea, but it really gained a new level of uh, obsessive interest in the 19th century. And I think that's a very, very uh, telling point um, of how we're looking at because both of those are very flawed. Mm -hmm. You know, nature is, is genetics. We don't really know that much about it. You look at the ideas of nurture, it's all things that are done to us. It's, it's things taught us. It's the way we're toilet trained. It's the way we're, it's, there's never any sense of our own volition, our own contribution to that. When do we get past the point of nurture in our maturing lives, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there's lots to talk about. Absolutely. Well, as far as the path of the spider goes, it looks pretty cool. I'll take a picture of it and put it up on the Patreon. There are a few things that I wanted to note about the path of the spider. Number one, uh, looking at it now, I'm realizing that there are certain places on the page that forever, for whatever reason, the spider didn't want to go. Uh, there, okay, there are some, great. Yeah, there are some blank spaces. Great insight. And uh, another thing is that I had a, in my mind at least, I had a kind of a border, which was, you know, not exactly the page. It's the edge of the page towards the bottom and on the sides. But there are also the words, the path of the spider at the very top. And I sort of use that as a, as a north uh, wall, right? That the spider couldn't nice. cross. Nice. But at a certain point when we started talking about children and hierarchies, I was, uh, as I was talking to you about that, I was letting the, the spider wander. And when I look down, I uh, allowed the spider to crawl past the north wall a little bit. So that's also interesting. Oh. But, uh, well, that's a very, very good report. And I hope people can hear that, you know, this is, you know, a kind of subconscious, not certainly not directly conscious, muscular activity of, of the hand. And also, you know, using space, using some sort of defined area, which we all need. Everything needs a frame. Uh, one of our themes is the concept of the frame. And you can only revise frames in, in any level of life if you become more conscious of them. But I think that's a really, really interesting report. And I, I love the idea of, of how, and I think that's one of the most beautiful explanations of blank space, which is also conceptually breathing space in, in sentences, in language, in writing, is it, it's simply where the spider didn't want to go. Right. You know, and that's a beautiful, beautiful way to think of it. You know, totally. it's not where I didn't want to go or I didn't fill in all that space or, you know, that. No, it's where the spider just didn't didn't want to go. And that's all the explanation that's needed. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that. So before we go, do we have practical tip dream, perhaps? We do. We do. And I'm, I'm kind of refining these now. I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to keep them very, very simple and practical. But I am wanting to put some new language uh, frameworks on it. I, uh, I'm deeply involved in the, in the idea and also uh, the practical science behind anti-venom. Uh, 
uh, across a range of, of, of creatures and substances. Uh, it's an important medical idea. It's a really major human idea. Uh, it ties into homeopathic medicine. It obviously links to the notion of vaccinations and things like that. Mm -hmm. My alternative uh, sort of label is demon therapy. Demon mm. therapy. Mm. Uh, I'm concerned that we move past simply trying to avoid dark thoughts and think positively. I'm a big believer in positive thinking. I really am. I'm certainly a big believer in terms of people who are faced with illness or acute crisis, trauma, tragedy. Absolutely. But I don't think that we can effectively move forward without having some connection to demons. And it is a little bit like uh, my story about um, uh, my, the female colleague, who how she has packaged her extreme violent rape experience. Um, but I start with this, is that uh, today we live in an era of self-esteem crisis on an almost uh, ubiquitous level. My view is that social media is a constant showcase performance of how disempowered people feel. And I think we all feel that, you know, in certain ways. We feel lost in a giant, for we're living on a huge scale, 7.8 billion people. We don't feel we're in control of our government. Uh, it, yeah, there's lots of reasons to feel disempowered. So here's my tip for this week. I want you to think of an extremely specific, physical, grounded, real moment in your life where you were truly, truly disempowered. And I'll share one of mine. Uh, I had a dingo, uh, a wild Australian dog, which I was allowed to keep for 15 years. She was a cancer survivor. She was a local hero. She had, in fact, caught a rapist who was masquerading as a water meter reader. She was a spirit animal, not just my dog. You know, no, no, no question about that. Mm -hmm. And on a beautiful, beautiful spring day near, she was 15, but it was a lovely day. I was about to, uh, I'd moved back to uh, a small town in Australia to a miner's cottage. I was, uh, had come off the land. I was starting to work with my garden and I was looking forward to a very busy, productive day. And she had an epileptic fit. Mm. And it was the most grievous assault on my peace of mind. I would rather have had a heart attack myself and died just then. Mm -hmm. That's how bad I felt. I had 20 miles to go to our local uh, country veterinarian. I, I just felt so surprised, so disempowered, so horrified that here the... the this spirit creature mm -hmm. um, who had been with me through so much. We'd, we'd canoed literally thousands of miles together. Uh, we'd been through an awful lot. She is very highly ranked in the veterinarian literature worldwide. She revolutionized cancer treatment, which I you know, funded, cancer treatment for small animals. I, I felt utterly disempowered, and I felt challenged in a way that I don't think I would have in losing a best friend or, or my own life, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I go to think about disempowerment, 
I re-engaged with that demonic moment. And I think, am I that disempowered now? And of course, the answer is always no. Mm -hmm. But I, I think this is my idea of demon therapy. Make an assertive peace mm -hmm. with your darkest and most persistent anxieties, and you will take a decisive step mm -hmm. toward the heart of yourself. This reminds me very much of the book Feeding Your Demons. Um, yeah. It's a Tibetan practice that encourages you to uh, sit down across from an empty chair and to imagine the personification of whatever demon you might have sitting across from you. And it encourages you to, encourages you to converse with, with it, to talk to it. It's exactly like that. And that is, that, I mean, that, that appears in many African religious traditions, certainly Vudan. I mean, it, it, it is a worldwide idea. It is just very, very scary yeah. to do. Of course. But it is about creating some kind of sacred space mm -hmm. within your own heart and your own guts to be able to deal with that kind of darkness, which the, the important thing about the darkness is that it's so personal. Mm -hmm. It's so intimate. It's your demon. It's not someone else's demon, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's where some therapy begins, yeah. you know? Got me thinking about my own moments, too. There was one uh, very recently, right after Gus was born. I, we purchased this uh, sock. It's called the Owlet that you attach to his foot. It's uh, it Basically, it's a pulse oximeter that registers uh, his, you know, blood oxidization and his heart rate, right? And uh, Jesus, yeah, Ooh. yeah, just to, just, yeah. just to keep close to it. And so there's a uh, one night that he was, uh, you know, maybe three weeks old, something like that. I'd been very afraid of SIDS, and you know, yeah, what I had done, you know, I'll kind of spoil the end of the story here. But what I had done was I had not properly applied the sock. So there's an app on my phone that gives me a readout of, uh, you know, of his of his. I can look at it right now if I wanted to and see see how he's doing. But on this particular night, I was in my bed in my underwear, and the air conditioning had gone out. This was a few. This was very hot summer, and uh, the machine begins to beep, uh, and it's the beep that means something is wrong. So right. I looked at the mm, I'm at, there. I looked at the app, and it showed that his heartbeat was doing fine, but that his blood oxidization level had dipped to eighty six percent. Uh, ideally that you want to keep it between 100 and 95 right anything really lower than that the 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 alarm will go off once it hit, hits 86 but anything less than 95 percent is not ideal so i run to his uh bassinet and i i pick him up and i i don't know if this was a product of you know my imagination because of what i had seen on the readout or if this was actually the case but he looked very not okay, right? So I'm sort of sweating, and I'm in my underwear, and I just pick him up, and I'm, I'm holding him, and I actually kind of, you know, wake him up, you know? I'm kind of like rocking him and waking him up to make sure that he can, you know, be alive, right? Um, and of course, he was fine, you know? Um, I think about a lot of things about that night, namely that I didn't wake my wife up or anything like that. I, I didn't I didn't know if I, you know, could, right? I didn't know if I could transfer the way that I was feeling onto another person on that moment. 
so I put the sock back on, make sure that it's tight and secure, and I look at the readout, and it's, you know, it's at 98%. He's actually, you know, completely fine. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if I've ever actually felt that completely uh, powerless and devastated as I did that night. It'll, that'll be with me forever. I think it will be, and I think it's good that you accept that and, and try to make a peace with that experience. Isn't it interesting, though, that our, that our sense of disempowerment, and I don't think this is an unusual sort of uh, motif here, that it, it isn't so much about fear for ourself. Mm -hmm. It's really about fear for loss, mm -hmm. for others, for... You know, it, it, it's some other magical connection with the world. And I, I, I think this is where, you know, people say, well, you know, everyone's afraid of dying. And, well, yeah, of course we are. You know, I mean, I think there is that there's certainly, you know, aspects of that, no question. But more often than not, I think that if we really tried to break down this notion of disempowerment mm -hmm. and, and feeling helpless, it's, it's about inability to change and to respond to a situation regarding others, yeah. you know? Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, that was heavy. Didn't expect to go there. <laughs> well, I've got a fun dream to balance Let's this off. It. Let's do the I've, fun I, dream. I, yeah. I, I, okay, and I think this is the nice counterpoint. Uh, along the way with this dream, I remembered a, a great YA, which is, you know, young adult novel from uh, my past, which I forgotten completely which is back in print called black and blue magic which i will leave listeners to follow up on but this dream was uh it was a flight dream and i haven't had a flying dream in a while and it was really really vivid i was flying over a kind of composite san francisco baltimore london just endless warehouse wharf area okay mm -hmm. maritime wharf area and a lot of the the laneways and alleys were old cobblestone things lots of of you know 55 gallon oil drums and weird darknesses and i was flying in pretty low you know i was doing a real sort of tactical uh terrain following sort of thing with, with pretty good uh, flying strength. I mean, I wasn't at all worried about crashing or losing flight capability. But I did keep thinking I was going to see something terrible happening, like somebody getting killed or, you know, some nasty sort of, you know, dark metro scene. But there was absolutely no one. It was dead silent. Mm -hmm. But then something odd, which kind of surprised me. I... Uh, I started moving some things around. I started with this uh, hand cart, like a, a, a non-automated non forklift. And I started moving, I moved that around. And then I moved some barrels. And then there was a larger crane that I was able to manipulate around. And then as I eased out of this really intense, magically dark, sinister, but completely empty, uh, warehouse wharf area and got into a more residential thing, I started getting more and more playful. I would knock on, on third-story windows in these old apartment buildings 
and then dart around the corner. Uh, so and then I, I was playing tricks, mm. and it was a real mischievous sense of fun in a good way. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a dark. It was just like I didn't want to scare anyone, right. but I did want them to know that there was something happening that was out of the ordinary. And when I looked back at my uh, dream index, which took me a long time to organize because I've been recording dreams since I was 20, uh, I don't know if there are many other examples where I am kind of a trickster figure. And I solidly was in this dream. And I felt really good waking up, coming out of that with that, because I knew in my heart it was, it, it was, it was well-intentioned. I wasn't spying on, on people. Uh, it wasn't sort of peeping in, you know, to windows mm -hmm. to see anything naughty happening. Mm -hmm. it, it was playful. It was playful. That's great. So that That's was awesome. my dream. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, on that note, folks, thank you very much again for subscribing to the Patreon. Make sure that you tell all your friends. Um, and yeah, if, you know, if it strikes you as a thing to do feel free to share these episodes on social media and tell people about them whether it's the free one or the link to the patreon although i'm not sure how many people blind buy patreons i know i don't but uh yeah do link people up to the to the free program and see what they see what they think about it because we're we're looking for listeners and uh and we're also, we we're also We've, not, uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for Chris, who actually worked at a marketing firm, but I am not a marketing genius. So all, all help is, is, uh, is worthwhile. It always is, because the essence of this is community building. Uh, we do have the uh, really fun idea of, of a happy hour starting this Thursday. We're going to do that once a month. We're going to be rolling out our book club and then some more serious courses. The book club is going to be very, uh, ha has some really solid structure. And uh, I, I think it is going to deliver great value for money, but also be just really fun. Mm -hmm. The courses are another level of, of real substance and community building beyond that. So David and I are here for uh, the duration. We're getting more excited uh, not less, and we really appreciate your contribution and, and collaboration, you know? Totally, totally. All right, folks, well, until next time, we will uh, we'll see you later. Be safe, be sane, and be sensible.